Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts do you love selena like really love whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. The Volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant, but no matter how the action unfolds, DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting 5 bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant up. They even have great same-game parlays. Like in the Celtics-Knicks game, you can get the Celtics money line, Tatum over 26.5 points, Jalen Brown over 22.5 points. That's at plus 258 odds in the Bucks bulls game. You can get Bucks money line, Giannis over 28.5 points, and Dame over 5.5 assists at plus 252 odds. So many different ways to bet the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms.
All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope all of you guys had an incredible week. Just going to hit one game from last night. The Golden State Warriors losing at home undermanned without Steph Curry to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Then we're going to do a deep dive on the Oklahoma City Thunder and everything I've learned about them from my film session this morning. And then at the end of the show, I've got a bunch of mailbag questions for you. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me as we try to get this thing launched. If you guys would scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss our film breakdowns as well as show announcements. Did another film thread from this Thunder Warriors game. You can find that at underscore JasonLT on Twitter. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them at the end of these shows. Actually, I have one other announcement for you guys. So obviously this is our last show of the week because it's Friday, but um, my grandmother passed away last week. So my wife and I are going to be flying to Dallas on Monday morning for the funeral and I'm going to be gone a good chunk of that week. So um, I'm not going to work while I'm over there. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. So there's going to be no show Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday or Thursday for Thanksgiving. So that's what six full days off. Um, but we'll be back next Friday breaking down basically everything that's happened in the time since. We'll probably just do a power rankings video that day so we can hit everything. But uh, obviously with me going out of town and then also we've just we've hit this really hard to start the season. I want to give some of my teammates here the volume a break as well so that they can enjoy the holiday. So just one show in the next week. And then when we come back the following Monday, we'll get back into our, our usual routine. All right, let's talk about Thunder Warriors. So uh, this is an undermanned Golden State Warriors team. Obviously, you have um, Steph Curry out, and then you know we talk a lot about this concept of slotting. This idea that you know when one guy is filling his core responsibility as a superstar, it creates these smaller responsibilities for everybody else. But when you remove the superstar, that huge chunk of responsibilities becomes vacated, and then other players have to step in and fill those responsibilities. Now, have we seen the Warriors win games without Steph before? Yes, but. Part of it is, you know, like Clay Thompson last year was having, in my opinion, the best half-court creation season of his career, right? And then, you know, Andrew Wiggins, before he left the team on the personal absence, was a guy that was giving real offensive punch to this team. And both of those guys just aren't playing very well right now. I think Clay was, what, one for 10 last night? Andrew Wiggins is still not giving you much scoring pop. He's, that funk that he's been in is just kind of persisting. And then Chris Paul, in particular, hasn't really been much of a scorer to start this season. And we got, what, 32 points on 31 shots out of Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, and Chris Paul. 13 assists to just uh, – 13 assists with eight turnovers. So that when you have a situation like that, everyone gets kind of like put into a position where they're doing more than they usually do. And that can typically lead to failure. And in this particular case, when these guys are already not playing well – it just kind of exacerbates that problem, right? So the Warriors were kind of overmatched to begin with. But at the same time, from a tactical standpoint, the biggest thing that stood out watching the film was just the huge gap in dribble penetration between the two teams. It didn't matter if it was a made basket or a transition situation or whatever in the world was going on around them on the court. The Thunder were able to pretty much just beat somebody off the dribble, make one kickout pass, maybe another closeout attack from there, but just consistently generate fantastic looks 
on the perimeter. Not only that, when these guys were making moves, whether it was Shea or Josh Giddy or or Jalen Williams, the Warriors were overreacting to it, in large part because they are more dangerous ball handlers. They're guys that can that can do more damage when they get downhill, at least relative to what Clay Wiggins and and CP3 are doing at this phase in this season, right? Like there was a play after a made basket where Andrew Wiggins is at the point of attack. And you guys know what I said about Andrew Wiggins after the 2022 season. Like I think he's a top tier perimeter defender when he's really locked in and engaged. And and Shea just kind of hit him with a hard left-handed dribble move after a made basket and got so much dribble penetration, got south of the free throw line that Sarge came over and he made the kick out pass to Josh Giddy, who was wide open on the left wing for three. And it, it just was an easy dribble penetration. And then you look at the other end of the floor and it's a struggle for Clay to get open. He's like, can't even get separated from Kenrich Williams. There's a bench wing from the Thunder, right? Like Andrew Wiggins is still struggling to 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 really get going offensively, and it's been it's been a problem. And again, you go down to the other end of the floor and it's just Jalen Williams getting you know, uh, uh, Kevon Looney on a switch and just beating him to the basket, just straight line drive for a layup or Josh Giddy coming off of a screen and he's got Corey Joseph on a switch and it's just boom, boom, like right, left crossover, like a double crossover and just right past Corey Joseph all the way to the rim for a layup. It just, they had no problem penetrating that perimeter defense for Golden State and either getting good shots for themselves or driving and kicking for easy shots. And then on the other end of the floor, it was just a hell of a time for Golden State's best perimeter creators to generate openings. And I think, again, it's it's a it's an indicator of what is a roster strength for the Thunder. And, you know, the, the best point of attack guys for Golden State just aren't defending very well right now, which is kind of a team-wide issue over the past couple of weeks, right? And then on the other end of the floor, it's a result of slotting as guys are put, being put into positions where they're going to struggle because they're being asked to do too much, exacerbated by the fact that those guys were already slumping to begin with. Another thing that the uh, um, the Thunder were doing that was working really well was the ghost screens with Isaiah Joe. So they did this three times for wide open threes for Isaiah Joe. Now, a ghost screen is a way to attack a switching scheme, right? So you run up like you're about to set a screen, but you don't actually set the screen. You just quick flare out to the three-point line. And what you're trying to do is because it's a guard-guard action, it's probably going to involve two perimeter defenders. And those perimeter defenders are in all likelihood going to switch. But here's the thing, Shea Gilders, whether uh, J-Dub did it once and then Shea Gilders Alexander, I think, did it the other two times. But like when you have a high-level level ball handler there, when two guys are considering switching, they're both going to err on the side of taking the, the, the bigger threat in this case in the, in the primary ball handler, right? And so he just, Isaiah Joe's just catching them lingering, so to speak, lingering too long in that switch. They got Wiggins with it twice. Like uh, it, it just, it's just way, easy for, uh, way easier for them to generate open shots in general, not just by beating people off the dribble, but just their ball handlers are more dangerous. So Golden State's overreacting in a way that the Thunder are not. Like, you know, there's a play, it, it, to give you the, the counter example, it's like there's a play where Kaysan Wallace is, is chasing Clay Thompson off a screen. And there's t- uh, two shooters on the weak side. I think it was Chris Paul and, and Moses Moody, if I remember correctly. Uh, and basically, as Clay's coming down off the pin down, you know, Chet Holmgren offers like a token little show, but he's not going out that far because Kaysan Wallace is chasing from behind. Kaysan is about to, is able to get all the way back in front of Clay and actually contest before he takes the shot. But even if Looney was rolling, both of Oklahoma City's defenders were just kind of nicely positioned. And I think it was Aaron Wiggins and uh, I want to say Jalen Williams was the other guy. And uh, Aaron Wiggins was uh, on the guiding the guarding the guy in the corner, and Jalen Williams was guarding the guy on the wing. And they're both just kind of like there in the way of Looney's roll. But at the same time. 
close enough that they can recover out to the shooters. They're not throwing the kitchen sink at Clay because they're not worried about him, at least not at this point in the season. And so, like, it's it, that is the difference because because of that, it, uh, Clay Thompson ends up taking the shot right, and Kasan Wallace is able to recover and get back in front and take that away. They're not panic chasing Clay, blitzing, throwing multiple bodies, and 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 giving up four on threes on the back end. And it's just that that's just the difference in that push and pull of the defense on one side of the floor. It's straight line drives and multiple defenders going to the basketball, even in those go screen actions. And then on the other end of the floor, it's not any dribble dribble penetration and guys guarding actions one-on-one, two-on-two, which is keeping them out of rotation and allowing them to uh, basically force guys into tough shots and to force turnovers that way too. So again, it's like Golden State's undermanned. Doesn't mean anything about them in the bigger picture, except for the question that I've continually uh, proposed, which is basically like, can Clay, Andrew, and Chris generate enough offense for this team to get over the top? And we'll see. And I, I think if they get to February and, and all three of these guys are still struggling, don't be surprised if they get aggressive to try to bring offense in at the deadline. But from I, I thought it was also just a, a really a good showcase for all of the perimeter talent that Oklahoma City has on the roster. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, let's do our deep dive into the Oklahoma City Thunder. So they are 8-4 and four right now. That's the sixth best record in the league. Eighth in offensive rating, seventh in defensive rating, fifth in net rating. So always a good sign for a really, really good team when you're top 10 in both offense and defense. On the offensive end of the floor, it's just a textbook case of you know my kind of favorite version of a modern basketball team, which is basically like 
all five guys can dribble, shoot, and pass, which makes it so that, again, like it doesn't really matter. We have a mailbag question coming at the end of the show talking about why teams run pick and roll at the beginning of possessions so frequently. And the short answer, and we'll go into more detail when we get later, is like that's how you get the defense in rotation. Like Everything about the beginning of the possession is about getting the defense into rotation. You're very rarely expecting a team, in a, even in a playoff series, to be like, let's just let you continue to attack one-on-one with your best player against our worst defender time and time again. Like, Generally speaking, it's you're, you might score a couple buckets in your with your pick and roll guy. You might score a couple po- uh, buckets out of the post, but you're really just trying to just get them to throw that third defender into the mix and pick and roll, or get them to throw that second defender in the mix and ISO and post up situations. From there, it's rotation basketball. It's it, everyone's flying around, and from there, aggregate ball handling, aggregate shooting, aggregate playmaking is what makes your offense so difficult to guard. And the Thunder have that in spades. And it's hard to overstate specifically how much Chet Holmgren helps with this because he is both a legitimate you know, defensive anchor on one end of the floor and a guy who can operate as a traditional center on the defensive end in terms of screening and popping and screening and rolling. But he's that in addition to being a very good dribble shoot pass guy, meaning like he's not a weak link in that drive-in kick game. If, uh, game. if anything, he's a strong link in that drive-in kick game. And that has gone so far towards just kind of like greasing the wheels, so to speak, in this Thunder offense. And above that, like he's super unaggressive. I would argue that Chet could shoot more than he has. And to his credit, it's because he's just trying to fit in with the team. And honestly, like in the big picture, it's fine. Like this team, because when he defers, it's just going to another great offensive player. So it's not like he's deferring so other guys you know, that are lesser players than him can shoot. He's just been such a, a, a shoe-in fit with that Thunder offense. Every single ball handler that initiates offense for this team brings a different strength to the table. So, like, Shea, for instance, is your shifty shot-making guard, right? And he's the third-best high-volume ISO guy in the league this year. He's getting 1.16 points per ISO. Out of the eight players in the league to run at least 50 to this point, he's third-best. Had a, He's ahead of Jason Tatum. He's ahead of Kevin Durant. He's ahead of Zion Williamson, who's like one of the most devastating ISO players in the league with his ability just to beat people off the dribble. Anthony Edwards, Paolo Boncaro, he's ahead of all of those guys. Josh Giddy is more of like your big playmaking forward, right? So like he can get size mismatches and get little shots over the top, and then he's a very good passer, although he's struggling with the shot making a bit this year. And then J-Dub, uh, Jalen Williams, a really good downhill athlete in terms of generating rim pressure, but he's actually a very good passer in a way that a lot of players of his archetype are not. And he's shooting really well, uh, especially in pull-up jump shot situations for a young player. He's at 50% in effective field goal percentage in pull-up jump shots this year. Hit a huge step-back three over Kevon Looney in the fourth quarter of the Warriors game to stem, uh, I think it was Pizemski who just hit a big three at the top of the key on the other end, and he kind of knocked that off with a, a, a big step-back going the other way. He's up over a point per possession in his self-creation metrics, so that's ISO, pick-and-roll, and post-up, all including passes. He's over a point per possession, but he brings a t- an entirely different vibe. All three of them do. And then after that, every single role player is a good shooter. Like They have seven players shooting over 40% from three. Five of their top seven in minutes played are all uh, uh, shooting at least thirty nine percent or better, and that, that that's what it is. It's it's seven players shooting thirty nine percent or better from three, but five of the seven guys that I just mentioned are in their top seven for minutes played, and they're all shooting at least thirty nine percent from three. Right, the only two guys in that top seven 
in their rotation that are like leave open guys, meaning like the defense off the ball would probably concede a catch and shoot three to them are Josh Giddy and Shea Gilsus Alexander who usually have the ball in their hands. So you're not leaving them open in, in the sense that they're usually, they usually have the ball in their hands, right? And then, you know, they do a decent job of staggering them throughout games so that they don't have a ton of overlap anyway. So like it's, it's, it's a complete, uh, you know, loaded roster from the standpoint of passing, shooting, ball handling, but at the same time with the off-ball threats to make it all work. Like no one, it, 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 you can't leave them open from three. They can drive and make, uh, you know, they can expand the advantage via drive and kick. It's just an incredibly well-rounded offensive roster. And then this Kaysan Wallace thing has been an absolute re- revelation. Like I scouted him for the uh, for Summer League this year. And, you know, I'm, I'm there watching him and it's, you know, another defensive guard prospect, right? And and you, you, you're you watching him and you're like, yeah, is this guy even going to play? Like, because the Thunder just have so much talent, but he's just been immensely important to them. He's played in every single game. He's uh, been an excellent point of attack defender, as was expected in his pre-draft process, but he's been a Swiss army knife for them on the offensive side of the ball. They're basically using him as a big man, which is, which is weird because they... <sighs> Everyone, the big comp that everyone was throwing out with Kaysan Wallace coming out of college was Drew Holiday, you know, big, strong, defensive-minded guard. But at the same time, you know, uh, the, the, he actually reminds me more of Gary Payton in the way that they use him offensively in the sense that they use him a lot in, like, ball screens as a guy who will set a screen for Shea and then roll to the, you know, take a short roll, and then, then they have a good ball handler and good athlete who can finish at the rim making plays in those four-on-threes. He's a very good cutter. He works a lot out of the dunker spot. I, p- I pinned a, a bunch of examples of this in that Twitter thread that I made today that you guys can find. He's actually scored 26 points on cuts and rolls this year, shooting 10 for 11 from the field. And the one that he missed was in this game, the drop-off pass from J-Dub, where he went up to dunk. And I, I think he actually did think he was the center for a minute because he tried to like straight vert dunk and got rim stuffed. But like he, there was a play where he caught, uh, he had Clay Thompson on him. He was in the dunker spot and Chet just did a basic pump fake and rip through, drew Clay and help. And he dropped it off to Kassan Wallace at the block, like behind the backboard. And he made a reverse layup on the other end off of a drop step because that's how good of an athlete that he is. And so, but at the same time, like if he needs to be in a spot up role, he's good there as well. He's 15 for 25 on catch and shoot jumpers. It comes out to 1.76 points per catch and shoot jump shot that he's taken this year. So like he's, he's just been a complete revelation, Uh, a really good two-way player, a, a clean fit on the offensive end of the floor adds to their just like kind of unending string of guys that are quick and versatile perimeter defensive weapons that are also plus offensive players. And it's just yet another reason to be excited about this team. On the defensive end of the floor, they're seventh in defensive rating right now, third in half-court defense, according to Cleaning the Glass. That's really impressive. They're the 13th best team in defending the paint. They're an excellent transition defense. They're the third best transition defense by defensive rating, according to Cleaning the Glass. Third fewest fast break points allowed per 100 possession. They are sixth in opponent three-point percentage. Again, we talked about that earlier, the concept of not overreacting to the ball. So staying home and offering good contests and forcing guys to make tough shots over individual defense uh, in on-ball reps, right? The biggest issues they have right now is they foul a bit too much. They're 20th in opponent free throw attempts per 100 possessions, and they really, really struggle to defensive rebound. They are 29th in defensive rebounding percentage. And it's not just the small lineups. Like, 
I've dug into that data because obviously they played really small against Golden State and, and struggled to keep Kevon Looney off the glass. But they actually have rebounded a little bit better when Chet's off the floor. And bad in both cases. So it's just a team-wide issue. They just do not have enough size to really be a good rebounding team. Um, that's their biggest personnel weakness, in my in my opinion. Like If you look at their roster, you're like, do they have shot creation? In spades. Do they have rim protection? Chet's going to be better than most like most guys in the league that you can get there in terms of rim protection. He's a good option there. Do they have off-ball shooting? Yes. Do they have athleticism and quickness? Yes. What is the one thing they don't have? A big, strong forward. Remember, I always talk about the two archetypes of forwards. The thinner, more perimeter-oriented forward, and then the bigger, stronger forward, right? Like the, the perimeter-oriented forward is like your... Jaden McDaniels, right? Like that's that's your uh, um, like Herb Jones, right? That's your Andrew Wiggins. There's a, there's a bunch of those kinds of guys in the league. They're usually about six eight. They're usually a little bit thinner, slender. They're usually quicker. They're usually a little bit better offensively in terms of dribbling and shooting. And then you have your big forwards, and this is like Aaron Gordon, DeAndre Hunter. Rui Hachimura, Jeremy Grant's kind of one of those guys too, where it's like a little bit closer to that like 6'9", 6'10 size, but they're usually built really strong. They're usually not as quick on the perimeter, but they're usually really good in terms of guarding bigger players and switches. And then they usually are more of a power offensive game and their ability to beat mismatches in the post, right? And there's just not a guy like that on this Thunder roster. Like they're Jalen Williams is basically your four man in this group in the starting lineup, and he's six foot six. Lou Dort is is a is a smaller, like kind of more fire hydrant type of of wing. He's kind of more in that like like he's like a bigger version of like that Bruce Brown type of archetype, right? And then um, you know, Josh Giddy is not a guy that you're looking at as a big strong forward, right? And even the guys coming off the bench, Aaron Wiggins and Kenrich Williams are are a little too small for that. Usman Jang is tall like that, but he's thin. And so I don't think he really qualifies either. So they don't really have a guy on, on the roster that fits that archetype. And ideally, that's what you'd want, it, especially with Chet being a little bit of a thinner rim protector. If you had a 6'9", 6'10", big, strong forward next to Chet Holmgren, that would be what would address their biggest weakness in terms of defensive rebounding, in my opinion. And so, again, like, I'm not here saying, like, the Thunder need to make a trade. I don't think they're in a, a rush. Uh, I don't think they're in enough of a rush. Like I don't think I don't think the the front office is looking at this like we need to win the title this year. So I, my guess is that the Thunder will just be patient. But just for fun, here's an example of a trade that would I actually really like this trade for both teams. But a trade that would address the biggest weakness for the Thunder while at the same time addressing the biggest weakness for the other team. So the Thunder, they have a need for this type of big strong forward, right? And they have a plethora of guys that are good perimeter defenders, in my opinion. The Los Angeles Lakers are a team that is completely devoid of perimeter athleticism in the backcourt, right? And uh, the best perimeter defenders they have right now are Cam Reddish and Jared Vanderbilt, who are both guys that are probably going to get ignored in a playoff series, which hurts them on the defensive end of the floor, right? Because they, when they play those guys, it hurts them on offense. When they sit those guys, their offense gets better, but their defense goes to hell. It's been a big part of the story at the beginning of the season as Jared Vanderbilt's been out, right? Um, but what they have is this guy named Rui Hachimura. 
And he's only played five minutes all season alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Why? Because LeBron James is also a big, strong forward, and Rui kind of slots behind him. And they don't feel comfortable playing him at the three alongside LeBron and AD because usually at the three, you need someone who can navigate screens. You need someone who's a, a good perimeter defender, a guy that you could, that can chase quicker players around on the perimeter. And we saw in the Golden State series in particular that Rui, when he was alongside LeBron, couldn't really do that. And so he became less effective in that particular series, right? So they're in this predicament where they've got an extra big, strong forward. And they are leaning more on their Jared Vanderbilt will play a lot. Torian Prince, you know, that, like those are the guys that are playing the majority of, of those perimeter minutes alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And even when they have gone big next to LeBron and AD, they've wanted to play Christian Wood, right? So Rui's kind of expendable there in that way. And so th- this is one of those deals where it's like Lou Dort, for Rui Hachimura, even though I think both fan bases would hate that trade. And before before any of you guys think like, oh, that's bullshit. Like, I would never give away Rui for Dort. Or I'd never give away Dort for Rui. I've already tweeted this out, and I promise you, everyone feels the same way. Every Thunder fan thinks it's not worth it. Dort's too good. Rui's too bad. Every Lakers fan thinks it's not worth it. Rui's too good. Dort's too bad. So, like, to get, to give you an idea, like, this is – that's kind of what makes it the perfect trade, in my opinion, is – like both fan bases hate it, but I think it legitimately fixes the biggest problems for both teams, and it comes from a surplus for both teams. Like Dort is a very good perimeter defender and is the guy who takes the primary point of attack assignments for OKC. It's an important job, and he. But at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, they have a lot of other guys that are capable of of doing that job and doing it well. And I don't think that would be an issue for the roster in the big picture. I'd argue that their defensive rebounding is a bigger problem. Like, they're legitimately giving up an offensive rebound on more than 30% of their stops right now. Think about that. Like, a third of the time that they actually get a stop, the other team just gets the rebound and they get to try again. It's a big weakness in this roster. Even if you look at the losses Oklahoma City's had against teams like the Pelicans, you know, uh, with that big front line of Jonas Valanciunas and, and Zion Williamson against the, uh, the, the, um, the Denver Nuggets, for instance, with Aaron Gordon and Nikola Jokic, right? Even the time they lost to the Warriors, I, I think they gave up like something crazy, like, like 12, 13 offensive rebounds in that game too. They gave up a ton of offensive rebounds last night. So like it's been, that's their biggest weakness, right? And so in a weird way, like for the Lakers, Lakers fans are like, they love Rui Hachimura. They want him to stay. But right now they're having trouble finding minutes for him because he's tucked behind LeBron. And they desperately need a good perimeter defender that's a plus offensive player that they could put between Austin Reeves and whoever it is that's at the uh, the three to give them a better fighting chance on the perimeter and against athletic guards. And so like Dort comes in and solves all of the Lakers problems by giving them a plus offensive player who's also a very good perimeter defender and a great athlete. And then on the other end of the floor, uh, the other end of that, that equation, you slot Rui Hachimura and you have, you know, Shea Gilgis Alexander, uh, uh, Josh Giddy, J-Dub, Rui Hachimura and Chet. Now you're big. Now you're a huge lineup. Now you're Chet next to Rui 6'9", next to Giddy 6'8", next to J-Dub at 6'6", elite athlete, next to Shea Gilgis-Alexander 6'6", with great length. 
and now you all of a sudden become a big team. So again, it's just for fun. That trade's not going to happen in my opinion because the Lakers do value Ruby Hachimura a ton, even though he they don't use him as much as they probably should. And because I'm sure the Thunder don't want to mess with a perfect concoction, I just thought that was like kind of a, a, a an example of a trade that would actually benefit both teams a great deal. I think both teams would get better immediately. All right, let's hit the mailbag before we get out of here for the weekend. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions for you guys. Okay. Is the reason that your favorite type of player is a strong forward because they can get the most efficient shot, which results to winning? Basically, essentially, like I think most uh, most pr- uh, playoff series, in my opinion, kind of eventually degenerate into rock fights and matchup hunting. And when you have a big, strong forward star who can consistently get a quality shot close to the rim – against smaller defenders that I think is the best weapon that you can have in a playoff series as long as that guy can play make and that's why I've always gravitated towards the Jokic's the Luka's the LeBron's like that that type of player has always been a type of player that I think is deeply impactful in the NBA postseason if you can punish size mismatches while also being an elite playmaker that to me is like the best version of a playoff player all right next question Hi, Jason. I love watching the Palo Franz duo in Orlando, and I am bullish that they can become the next Brown Tatum. But in order to maximize their potential, I think the Magic need to figure out what sort of guards can play alongside them offensively. I've been having an argument with a pretty passionate Magic mate, and I'd love you to settle the score. I think guards that can set up the offense and put Franz and Paolo in spots to attack, aka the Fred Van Vliet player archetype, would allow them to just focus on scoring and secondary playmaking and let the other role players feed off of that initiator. My friends, my friend thinks Franz in particular can develop into a true point forward and Paolo enough of a DHO high post passer that the guards, um, they should target our more off-ball shooters slash cutters, aka the Zach Levine player archetype. And let the combined aggregate ball handling you talked about before this, uh, uh, before sort out the team offense. Obviously, the dream situation is a guard that can do both, but those guys don't grow on trees. So a couple different things here. Um, very good question, for the record. I tend to think that in this particular case, your two stars are going to inevitably be the offensive engines in the big picture. I absolutely think that Franz can de- develop into a true point forward. And I absolutely do think that Paolo can kind of spell him in the same way that Julius Randle spells Jalen Brunson essentially as this big bully ball forward. And I think he can be a lot better than Julius Randle, obviously. In the backcourt, it's always a tough battle because like there's always a give and a take, right? Like you're probably a little bit frustrated with some of the stuff with um with like Jalen Suggs and and um and Markel Fultz offensively, but those two guys are really good athletes and really good defensive players at the point of attack. And so it gets tricky because if you, you know, if you go, let's say you were like, let's bring in offensive skill to help organize Franz and Paolo. It's like, then your point of attack defense takes a hit and you, uh, is Wendell Carter Jr. enough of a rim protector to hold things down? Probably not, right? Like if, like that, that's always the give and the take. And so honestly, as of right now, I kind of like the physical bully ball nature of the magic with uh with the backcourt that they have and I know it sounds crazy because like right now they're just not good enough offensively that goes without saying but like don't rush this situation like there this is not a team that needs to accomplish everything this year it's actually worthwhile to see if Jalen Suggs in a few years can be you know uh, like a top tier two-way 
defensive minded guard that can also shoot and slash off of the attention that Franz and Paolo generate, right? And same goes for Markel Fultz, right? So I think I think in the in the short term, it actually makes sense to just kind of continue to give these guys as much reps as possible. And when you get closer to this being more of a win now situation, maybe two years from now, you could take a look at at some of the more intricate details of whether or not the offense is 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 clicking at a high enough rate, right? And and then you find out in the big picture. Cause like obviously I think Franz can be a star perimeter initiator, but that's still somewhat up in the air, right? And so you need more data. And the only way to get more data is with more time. So like again, like I understand there, OKC is an example of a team that's getting to the point where they like need to start making some decisions because they're that good and their window is entering into the right now, right? But Orlando's just not there yet. And so in my opinion, it makes more sense to to wait. But I like good physical point of attack defenders next to Paolo and Franz because I don't think they're a great rim protection team um, compared to some of the top tier rim protection teams in the league. So I like having that uh, that point of attack defense. And then also just in general, I like having an identity. And Orlando's identity is they're bigger and stronger than you and they're going to be a pain in the ass to deal with in the physicality areas of the game. And that to me is worth just as much in a positive way that their weak half court offense is worth in a negative way, if that makes sense. Jason, why do NBA teams rely so much on traditional pick and roll every possession to start an offense, to start offense instead of actually running plays slash sets that are effective. Yes, it's a brute force offense, uh, but didn't you also say that's something you really need in that playoff crunch time when things are tight? So in general, it does like again when it comes to uh, the beginning of possessions, like we talked about at the beginning part of the show. In my opinion, it's all about getting the defense into rotation, and it doesn't really matter how you do it. Like some teams are going to do that by attacking in the post, right? Like the, you know, the Lakers, when they get into the playoff series, they'll post AD and LeBron a lot more, right? We see that the Raptors do this a ton where it's like OG Ananobi or Scotty Barnes, just, just bullying their way to the basket until they get the defense in rotation, right? And then there are teams that can do it through five out offense, right? This is a lot of the Sacramento Kings, Golden State Warriors, where it's like heavy ball movement actions and sets. And that's another way to do it. And then there's your brute force teams that like, Dallas, for instance, that are, are doing it through pick and roll. But like at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter how you do it. It's more about once you get the defense in rotation, can you finish plays? Like by having top tier play finishers or being a great drive ki- driving kick team. And, and like those are the kinds of questions that kind of push you over the edge offensively. But essentially, the reason why you see pick and roll is the majority of the time uh, the, what teams will do is because outside of a you know select few archetypes of players in the league that can get the defense and rotation in other ways like one of the re- why does golden state's five out offense work because you have Stephen clay why does sacramento's five out offense work because you have malik monk and De'Aaron fox they do it in a different way but that's that's why it works and so you kind of have to do it based on your personnel and most teams the easiest way to get the defense and pick and roll is let, let me give you an example like the lakers in a bench group with austin reeves and uh anthony davis and christian wood just for an example like, and AD hasn't been posting up as much this year. So, like, give Austin spread floor, two shooters in the weak side corners, shooter on the – or two two shooters in the corners, shooter on the weak side wing, and AD comes up and sets a ball screen. Chances are he probably can get one of the weak side defenders to lean in. Now it's a kick-out pass. Now – D'Angelo Russell or Torian Prince, whoever it is, is attacking a closeout there. Like that's how they do it. They'll their their main goal there is just to get a closeout opportunity for somebody. That's how they start the possession, right? So again, like it's just an easy way to do it. And the main reason why you see ball screens in particular is not only are guys like Austin and the rest of the guys in the league, that's where they're most comfortable, but also if when you look at the way coverages are built, 
with uh, a lot of teams going with high drop and backside help. It's just the easiest way to get baked in rotations by the coverage. Like so many teams that I've covered this year are engaging the low man on the roll man every single time, meaning they're bringing the screen defender up high to help corral the ball. They're conceding the pocket pass, but they're tagging over with that with that weak side guy. So the, if they're they're either conceding the pocket pass right into a defender, or they're denying the pocket pass with the low man and conceding that that skip pass. Right? They're defending the action three on two, and like so, if you can just run an action and automatically have an open man, why not just do that? And so it's a way to kind of like begin the possession. And for the record, every team runs sets. They do. It just depends on how frequently they do. And some teams run it more than others, run sets more than others. But like if a team dribbles the ball up the floor and just runs a pick and roll, they're doing it to try to get the defense in rotation. And then they're trying to play drive and kick basketball out of that. Next question. I'm not sure how the mailbox questions work, but I would love if you could talk about if you feel that Devin Booker outplaying Ant so heavily means anything or if it was just a bad game for Ant. I never will react to one single regular season game as an uh, uh, indicator of who's better. Never forget, last year in the regular season, I remember because I was coming back from a ski trip uh, in Colorado when I was watching the game in some dive bar in like Golden, Colorado or something like that. Um, but uh, literally... Joel Embiid just utterly obliterated Nikola Jokic. Just obliterated him for the world to see on national television. Anybody here think Jokic is not better than Embiid? Like, obviously he is. So I would never overreact to one single regular season game. Not to mention, like, the uh, one of the guys in the comments pointed out something that I didn't even realize, which is that the, the um, Timberwolves were on an incredibly difficult stretch in their schedule that had basically brought them to the edge of fatigue in a lot of ways. Doesn't mean Devin Booker... Like, I believe... I believe Devin Booker is probably a little bit better than Ant right now. I think Ant will pass him very soon. But I'm just saying I'm not going to use that particular game as an indicator. Next question. You talk a lot about typical young guard mistakes like shot selection and turnovers. Is there a way for young guards to limit them? For example, diving into a ton of tape. If yes, why don't they? If you cannot learn those things on tape, you just got to play. As a fan who's never seriously played, I always wonder that. Honestly, the guys are doing everything. They've got coaches in their ears. They're showing them, like, hey, you're missing this read. Like, hey, you're over-dribbling here. Hey, this is over-penetration. Hey, this is a bad shot. We don't really need to take the shot. Hey, defensively, you need to do this. Hey, you need to sprint back. Hey, you need to be in this position and help. Hey, you need to do a better job fighting over screens. Like, they're telling them all this stuff. It's just, as with everything, it's incremental improvement. It's not like you go have a film session, you're like, oh, I just got to do that differently, and then suddenly you're a way better player. Like, that's not how it works. Like, everything when it comes to the lightning-quick decision-making in real five-on-five -five basketball is incremental progression. You're always just getting a little bit better. Uh, for example, like I, when I was in college, I was just an athlete. So I just guarded the other team's best player, shot open threes. In JUCO, I had to guard bigs because I was like the only big on my team. So like, like that, that was what I did. But as I've gotten older, I've become a perimeter player. And I was a late bloomer, right? So I didn't play in high school. And so I didn't, I didn't play in college until my third year of college. And so I, in my development, I am... In a, oh, I I got to phases that other people hit much earlier. So like when I was in my when I was 25, I was starting to kind of play a lot on the perimeter, and like I was starting to kind of figure out how to make reads and to, to to play five on five basketball and to be a part of a team. And then 26, I got a little better. 27, I got a little better. 28, I got a little better. 29, I got a little better. Right? Like now at age 32, I feel really comfortable and confident as a perimeter player. But even then, like I'm still every time I play, I just get a little better at making the reads, a little better at reading uh, uh, at 
kind of like feeling the flow of a game and knowing when it's time for me to be aggressive as a score versus when it's time for me to look to pass, right? Like I've gotten so much better since COVID at building out a post game. I just was like not good at scoring in the post. And now it's like a strength in my game and you can't put a small defender on me. Like it's just, everything is like little tiny improvements. Everything is incremental. I'm never expecting a, a young guard to have two or three film sessions or two or three good ball handling workouts and then to rectify all their problems. Like everything is like, you're always trying to just get 1% better, if, if that makes any sense. Can you break down how the Bucks can build off of Dame's huge game without Giannis? So I didn't actually watch this game, but I, I saw the highlights. Um, Dame, to start this year, has just not been the same guy in terms of his shot making, right? And in general, that's caused a, a boatload of problems in terms of just how easy it, it is for them to score. Things like the the Dame-Giannis pick and roll, like just the way teams are guarding Dame, like he needed to get into the habit of not in the habit, but get into a rhythm where he's making a lot of his pull-up jump shots to actually drive the aggressive coverages that will open things up for them offensively. And as I said at the beginning of the season, like it was pretty clear to me that Dame came into camp out of shape and was leaving a ton of his pull-up jump shots short. But what's inevitably going to happen? Dame didn't just get bad at basketball. He's eventually going to get his legs underneath him and he's going to start making shots. And I thought that game was a, a huge indicator of, of, of Dame progressing in the right direction on that front. And then Giannis comes back. That's where you can start kind of leaning into that action a little bit. And as teams get terrified of Dame making those shots, that's what will open up those short roll opportunities for Giannis. All right, last question. What is Steve Kerr's problem with Moses Moody? Even when Moody is balling, Steve will put in inferior players over him, i.e. Anthony Lamb last season, and this year Corey Joseph, and to a lesser extent Clay, when he's clearly struggling. First of all, you got to stick with Clay. Uh, because if you're going to have any chance of winning the title, you need him to be, you know, the type of semi-reliable offensive player that he was in the playoffs in 2022, right? And for most of the regular season last year. But above and beyond that, there like there are some confusing ones like Corey Joseph. I I, I mean Corey Joseph is a good NBA player, but I don't I, I that's the one guy where I'm like I don't understand why he is in particular out there. But in in this particular case, Kerr's trying to find who he trusts. And one of the tricky things with Moody in particular, in my opinion, and just my time watching him, I really like him in the playoff rotation when the rotation is shrunk because he's always playing alongside good veteran players. And in those situations when he's just focusing on point of attack defense and he's in limited minutes so he can foul and it's not as big of a deal and just taking wide open catch and shoot threes off of, you know, pick and roll actions where he's getting great looks like that's where he's really good. It's it's when he's in some of these groups where multiple young players are on the floor, multiple like the where they're uh, during the regular season rotation when there's like 10, 11 guys in the rotation and he's playing with three or four other bench guys and he has to do more off the bounce like in the overall defensive talent isn't as good that's where I can see him struggling and so in a weird way in moments like this where it's a regular season game excuse me and Steph Curry's out those are the times when Moody hasn't looked as good right so but at the same time like Steve Kerr you know every coach has the people that they trust and and then you know they have stretches where they have heavy trust in a player and they lean on them heavily. And then sometimes that trust gets broken and then suddenly they get removed from the rotation. And, you know, young guys in particular are going to go through that. And that's one of the downsides of being a lottery pick playing with a, uh, with a team that has championship expectations. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, this is what I would tell, you know, cause I have, I have Lakers fans that do this all the time. They're like, we need Max Christie to get more minutes. And like, you know, Cam Reddish should get more minutes, like less Tory and Prince, more of this guy. And it's like, if you really think that more minutes for the seventh or eighth best player on your team is the difference between you being good or bad, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you. Like, generally speaking, 
like that's not going to be the kind of thing that separates success from failure in my opinion like should Moses Moody play a little bit more yeah probably but they're still six and seven or whatever if they do like I don't think that's turning the the page on on a lot of these things like uh the Lakers finally because of injuries played a lot of Max Christie and he looked like a young player you know and so again like I don't think I think I think that those are conversations worth having but they're not big picture conversations and they don't have any real bearing on the success of the team in my opinion. All right, guys, that's all I have for this weekend. Remember taking uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday off for Thanksgiving as I go out of town uh, to Texas. And then when I get back, we'll cover that week's worth of games on Friday. As always, I appreciate you guys and I'll see you then. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon.